Life with Catherine, co-starring Woofer, the Wonder Dog. Episode 12, Things to Come. Woofer, move away from the door. I've got like five minutes to get to my biochem class. Okay, but this had better be muy importante. I'll give you 30 seconds to explain yourself. What's that? You say it's almost time for WCBN's annual fundraiser? And that WCBN, which I can count on for the best in music, public affairs, and U of M sports, will be counting on me and hundreds of other generous listeners to help keep them on the air for another year? So I should be sure to tune in and be a part of it all? Woofer, I told you! I've got to get to class. Besides, I don't feel like discussing deconstruction of the Hegelian dialectic. Take a tip from Woofer, the Wonder Dog. Tune into WCBN's annual fundraiser and do your part to make the Homeland's airwaves the envy of the free world. Fundraiser begins this Friday, February 19th. So stay tuned and join us this Friday for the next week of fundraiser fun. Fun, fun, fun. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm so happy to have Mabel O. Wilson here in the studio. Thanks for coming by, Mabel. Oh, my pleasure. And today we've got some John Coltrane uh, for our breaks and on this winter afternoon. Before we go any further, I will read your short bio from the back of Begin with the Past, Building the National Museum of African American History and Culture, out with Smithsonian Books, 2016. And also, thanks for hurrying over here. I know it was a, we were a little bit pressed for time, so thanks for, <laughs> thanks for getting here. My pleasure. No problem. Uh, Mabel O. Wilson is a professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, and a research fellow at the Institute for Research in African American Studies. Her research investigates space and cultural memory in black America, race and modern architecture, and new technologies and the social production of space. She has written numerous articles and books, including Negro Building, Black Americans in the World of Fairs and Museums, which was interesting because that book actually had a working title that was different 
I saw in research. Yes, it did. When did that change? Or how? what was the story behind that, Mabel? Do you mind if we start there? Oh, sure. No. Um, the title change was a very pragmatic one. My editor <laughs> called me one day and said the title that I had proposed, which was Progress and Prospects, from a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois, who's a major um, protagonist in the, in, in the historical narrative. Um, I was really excited about that. And his remark was, well, if you saw that on, a, um, on the book binder... On the spine? On the yeah. spine, would you know what that is? And you need to come up with a better title. Mm. which just threw my head for a spin. Right, because you were able, you kept the subtitle. I kept the subtitle, yes. Mm. Yeah, so that was one of those like, oh, okay, now I've got to, <laughs> what do I call it? So I was brainstorming with a really good friend of mine, uh, Veronica Jackson, who's an artist and a curator and an exhibition designer, and we were just going through like titles, what do you got? She said, well, what's the book about? <laughs> a very, very good question to ask, right? Like, what's at the core of it? And I said, it's about expositions. And, you know, I look at these things, weird things called Negro buildings. She's like, Negro building. I said, Negro building. Yes, <laughs> that's it. And so I got back to my editor, Niels Hooper at University of California Press. And I said, Niels, I've got this title, Negro building. What do you think? He's like, oh, <laughs> that's really provocative i yeah. like that yeah 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 and the rest is history and the rest is history because it's about the buildings themselves but also you know this question of like the new negro at the you know turn of the 20th century and what that that meant uh historically and through these these spaces that i was describing in the book and was that did that book grow out of your your research for your your phd Mabel yeah, it was my dissertation, yeah, whose title was Making History Visible. So very different project and title. But you you, sh you took it and made it into this, this book. Yeah, I expanded it and added some things and, you know, really did a deeper dive for the, for the book. Yeah. It's somehow different, isn't it? Because you'd think for the dissertation, that's a deep enough dive as it, <laughs> as it is, right? At certain points, it's like, oh, let me swim faster so, yeah. <laughs> in the diving. But then when it's when you have this vision for a book, it changes it somehow. Yeah, I always thought when I was going to turn it into a book that there were going to be gaps and things that were missing. And I, I just wanted to get my, I just want to get the, you know, the dissertation monkey off my back. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I literally wrote, I think it was a four chapter dissertation. I wrote three chapters in a semester because I was just plowing through archives and writing. And, you know, it's just, if you shut out everything, you can get a lot of work done. So and my hat's off to you. Yeah. Well, if I were wearing a hat, I would take it off to you. But anyway, <laughs> headphones yeah, off. Yeah, headphones <laughs> off. <laughs> well, okay. Well, let's turn. And then the next, the next publication was Begin with the Past, the book that we have on the table with us today. Yeah. Um, with Smithsonian Books, mm -hmm. 2016. And I think you have a first edition. Well, you've got the first version of the book, which has uh, the interior wasn't photographed when the first edition came out. So the second edition, well, yeah, this, well, the second, yeah, I guess it's the second edition. It's not a print run. Um, actually, has photographs of the interior instead and of the artist renderings that are instead in this, of the renderings, this edition. Yeah, and it's in I paperback, I think. I was so I was going to ask you about that yeah. um, because you're an 
a, an artist as well as a scholar, a maker, and you do photo essays. So I thought it was interesting that the choice was to use the, um, artist renderings rather than the photographs. Well, again, another more pragmatic. <laughs> they wanted the book out at the opening. Right. The interior, literally, when I did a preview, um, I did a, a preview opening. You know, it was a big party. It was a pre- it was for the preview celebrations. Was stuff. it before President? Yeah, Barack Obama before the cut official the opening, ribbon? they did a series of for their different you know food groups of people gave big money. You know, because I was a participant contributor, I was with one group of people, um, but they were literally still putting up wall text. Um, yeah, it, you know, exhibitions weren't done. I mean, there was a mad rush to get that open by that date, and thank God they did. Yes. <laughs> Oh, completely. <laughs> Considering things that have happened, the way since things turned out, September twenty sixteen. Yeah, Lonnie Lonnie Bunch is remarkably. And this is the director, founding. Yeah, director. he's the founding director. He's incredibly strategic and just has amazing foresight around for things like that. How did you become involved with this project, Mabel? Um, two ways. Um, one had to do with the dissertation. I, In the dissertation, I actually cover the early history of the museum, which started as a group of people who wanted to do in Washington, D.C., a National Negro Memorial. Uh, and that group, some of them had done Negro, worked with on, on Negro buildings, worked on expositions. Um, so there was already this sense about marking space, memory. And these were these were people who wanted to commemorate those Civil War Union soldiers who are now dying. And so the Grand Army of the, I forgot what it's called, the Grand. Of the, the Republic? I think it? that's what yeah. it's called. It's, it's the organization that gets together, um, that, that, that would, uh, like once a year, would get together um, uh, soldiers. And, you know, this is 50 years after. Those soldiers are, you know, they're, 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 they're in their 60s and 70s. And, and um, so they were meeting in Washington, D.C., and there was a committee of African-Americans because they had to provide accommodations because um, because of segregation, you know, the, the white hotels would not um, accommodate. And what year is this? Uh, 1915. Okay, 1915. Okay. And having me, you know, I think once they started to gather together people, there was, a, you know, a group, there was an amazing woman whose name I'm completely forgetting, um, who was involved with that. Um, and, you know, that she and her co-chair both said, um, you know, let's commemorate these these men in terms of their contribution to the nation. Um, and they thought, OK, we need to have a monument um, for them. And these two co-chairs, if I'm because I think it's in your introduction or so. Um, were it's these, in there. They, these co- these two co-chairs, they they were already running maybe in Chicago and somewhere else like museums or, or using space for memory already? No, that, one or, was a... Um, or I might be confused. Yeah, yeah, no, one was an educator and I'm totally... But she was very interesting. Um, yeah. Um, you know what? Well, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. I was going to hand you the book. But yeah, it's like and the guy... Everyone can get the book for themselves yeah. and read through the introduction. Yeah, and the guy had been involved in the Negro building at James in, in Jamestown Exposition in 1907. He was a lawyer. Um, so they spearheaded that. So, so the long story is that I gave my dissertation to Lonnie Bunch. 
who had just been um, selected as as the director of the museum. And he happened to be a friend of a friend of mine. And she says, yeah, just go make an appointment and see Lonnie. I'm sure he'd be interested in your your work. So I just I gave him a copy of the dissertation. And was he already based in D.C. at that point? He had already moved he... to D.C. Okay. Yeah. So I gave him a copy of the dissertation um, because I just thought, oh, you'd probably be, he's a historian. So I thought, okay, he'd probably be really interested in it. And part of what I do in the dissertation and also in Negro building is I, I want people in the museum movement to recognize that this wasn't just about making a building. This is about politics and activism. And that's what I narrate in the, in the book, Negro building. Politics, activism, who builds our buildings, yeah. who lives in them, who gets, yeah, yeah. this is all to come. Let's yeah. take a short break. Sure. Today on Living Writers, Mabel O. Wilson is here in the studio. Begin with the past, Building the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the book on the table with us now, and, and there's more to come. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got stuff behind the glass. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, so glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers today. Mabel O. Wilson is here in the studio. The book on the table with us is Begin with the Past, Building the National Museum of African American History and Culture, out with Smithsonian Books. They make really pretty books. They do. I'm sure the soft cover is equally <laughs> as nice. And with the new photographs, too. Yeah. So you've seen that. Yeah, so, I, okay. I had a preview copy. We're, hopefully, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a couple. Yeah. <laughs> no. uh, so does it change anything to see the new photographs? Or were you, did you get to have a say in that as well? Like which photographs would be used? Not or? so much. There was the book designer who really sort of figured that out. But I, I mean, I had to come up with an image list anyway uh, for the whole project. Um, as I, you know, developed the book. Um, and then, you know, ba based, I think, on my narrative and text, they they chose particular images that they had the professional photographer do for the... How, so how did you decide what the 
like the structure of the book and who to interview for the book to gather more of the story, well, to tell the story of this museum? Um, the they were very um Kinshasa Conwell who's the associate director approached me and she approached me for two reasons one she knew I had written this history the other I had been on a team of architects for the competition which they they ran and I joined I I worked on that because my uncle called me one day and said hey I hear they're building this big museum you're an architect you should be on a team <laughs> and so I just boldly called up a, a friend colleague Elizabeth Diller who's a professor at Princeton but also of Diller Scafidio Renfro the architects of the High Line the Broad Museum amazing firm and I just said Liz hey there's this project you know I'd love to work on it with you guys if you're interested and they did and so we went through we submitted paperwork work. We got shortlisted. Then we made the final shortlist. We did the competition. And so we made, you know, made a contribution in that way. So Kinshasa Conwell, the associate director, knew I was familiar with it both from a historical perspective, but also as an architect. I, I understood, you know, there's a four volume, five volume, thousands and thousands of pages of a working program, diagrams. Like I, I knew the building, basically. And so based on that, they approached me and said, we'd like you to write a book on a building, which they usually will do, a book of this sort will have multiple authors. They'll break it up into different chapters and have multiple authors do it. But they trusted me to come up with a concept that they thought would be um, appropriate for the institution. And so that must have felt pretty good and then slightly overwhelming or what was, was that terrified. like? <laughs> <laughs> right, One. Right, right. There was a moment of, I'm sure, bliss. Like, as, hooray. As a living writer, I really <laughs> yes. don't like writing. <laughs> <laughs> I can draw for hours. Writing is so painful for me, but it, I get, it, it serves a purpose and it helps me think through things. Well, how do you get through the pain? Like, what's your process like? It's then? just, it's like design, you know, you got to start somewhere and it's going to be crap and it's going to be ugly. And then you just pound away at it and, you know, and it, and it evolves and you have it in dialogue with people, you know, colleagues, friends, editors, and then, you know, it just becomes this wonderful readable text. So it's, it's always, yeah, it's always a challenge. But in, in terms of the book, then you, you know, Lonnie as a historian, having read my uh, dissertation, I said, you know, the story of the museum is exactly the kind of story that the museum is trying to tell. It's a struggle. And it's, a, it is, and it's a series of failures. And I think that really appealed to Lonnie that this isn't the American narrative of just, mm -hmm. you know, we pulled ourselves up by a bootstrap and we triumphed. It's like, no, it's a struggle and it's constant failure, but you persist. And I think he liked that idea, which allowed me not just to write about, you know, the incredible building by Max Bond, Phil Freelon and David Ajay and the Smith Group, Fabs is the name of the firm. <laughs> But uh, but also tell a history of how this came to be. And which he, is your wheelhouse. Yeah. And I wanted people to think about the history of the built environment, which people don't often. They, buildings, you know, as Walter Benjamin said, we, they exist in a state of distraction. So we're not often attentive to buildings in our built environment. We use it, but we don't pay attention to where it comes from. Which is, is another big project of yours, your activism um, with WBYA question mark, who builds your architecture. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, WBYA. Always wanted to say that on a radio. <laughs> you can say it many more yeah, times. Yeah, we said we, we did it exactly WBYA because it's a kind of reference to, you know, like the, the radio. Um, yeah. Um, but That's yeah. excellent. Yeah, no, that was another, it's a collaborative research project, advocacy project with a group of people um, around questions of getting architects to think about the labor that's involved in the building of buildings, which is often sort of on the other side of a firewall. Well, well, and we'll talk more about this, I think, a little bit later in the in the episode today, um, Mabel. Um, but but before that, because you were talking about people walking around, not just architects thinking about who's building the building, who's using, you know, all of those questions, but even just us walking around as citizens in built space or having spaces built for us mm-hmm. to inhabit. Yeah, no, I mean, buildings are everywhere. I mean, it, it shapes our everyday. It's where we wake up. It's where we go to work. It's leisure. It's, you know, it's where we protest. It's, you know, so the built, the built environment is, you know, it's, it, I think we're so accustomed to it um, that we don't necessarily pay attention um, to it until it's in your backyard, for example, and then you protest. Um, and, and so when you're referring to that, do you mean, for example, the monuments recently yes, as part of built environment. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I mean, monuments are a really great, great example, but you know, we have a developer in the white house um, and he has hired a lot of architects, a uh, number of well-known firms to do projects um, that have his name plastered on it. So, you know, it's it, architecture is about power. It's about wealth, finance. I mean, it touches, you know, a lot of things. Um, I mean, it's, you know, like in a place like New York City, a lot of the construction of housing has been on the upper end. It's a lot of luxury housing, you know, so it's now split. It's not no longer public housing. It's it's affordable housing and it's being driven by private development. So on the upper end are, are luxury housing. But a lot of those, when you go around the city, they're empty. I mean, people buy them to base. I call them space deposit boxes. Right. Isn't there like a whole tower building that's like a, a narrow building that's been built in New York City where most of it's empty? Like the like people buy like from other countries, perhaps yeah. even buy Pencil it as investment. skyscrapers. That, yeah. 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 So there's a whole. It's hideous. Yeah. And there, you know, New York Times, I think, did a great expose on the Time Warner Center and, you know, people who are literally laundering money through the purchase of apartments. So, you know, so there's a whole other kind of, you know, very interesting uh, current uh, economic and political history to building as well. And then this feeling of um, emptiness, the space that so many could use. Yeah. And yet others have the, the, the power to have this is property yeah. and to keep it from others. Yeah. And so it's the difference between something being, being property versus something being a home. Um, and yeah. And I, and I think, you know, even just on a, on a whole other spectrum, like house flipping, people buying houses, flipping them is, you know, they basically ratchet up the value of, of a house, take the profit, but then it's, 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 it's ratcheting up you know, the price of a house so that people can't afford it any longer. Um, and so there's something about how real estate and property have become sort of obsessions of Americans lately and not about, you know, like where people can live. Yeah. How did, uh, there's so many things I feel like it, the question happened, like, how did that happen? Like, how did we become this? But in some ways, I think through reading through a lot of, um, your work, um, including a couple of the photo essays and, and recent pieces of yours, your articles, I feel like 
it's been happening all the time. Yeah, this is nothing new. Um, you know, the question of property is fundamental to the birth of the United States. When the English came over, Europeans were coming over, and they were imagining a pristine wilderness. But now there were indigenous populations everywhere, and the land was actually quite cultivated. Um, and, you know, but nonetheless, it was like land for the taking. And, you know, literally just incrementally moving inward further and further and, and pushing indigenous populations off the land in order to accrue a lot of property. So a lot of my current work is sort of looking at Maryland and Virginia, and those were colonies, companies, the Virginia company, the Maryland. Um, and you don't the, often think about that necessarily, mm -mm, that mm -mm. connection. No, there were economic endeavors. And, you know, and a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the um, men that came over and made claims for property were often the second sons of landholders, for example, in England who couldn't get property because it was entailed to the firstborn. So they could accrue massive tracts of land um, in the new so-called new world. Um, but, you know, the, 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 um, the, the king, you know, the king often was like, but you've got all this land, what are you producing? So there was constant pressure to produce tobacco and to produce other oh, to, crops. To give back to the... Yeah, to feed the commodity markets, the emerging commodity markets and cotton, eventually rice, indigo. Yeah. Okay. So there is a whole history to, to the land and ownership um, in this country. And, you know, it, it, it's a through line to, you know, questions of redlining and, you know, all of these issues about who can or can't own property in this country. Let's take a short break and then we'll be back to hear more from Mabel O. Wilson. Begin with the past, building the National Museum of African-American History and Culture out with Smithsonian Books. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Thank you. 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Mabel O. Wilson is here in the studio with us. Begin with the past, building the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the book on the table with us. Um, and we've also got one of uh, Mabel, your your latest pieces out with Eflux Architecture, um, Dimensions of Citizenship. Um, the title is Mine, Not Yours. So you begin and end this this piece that that um, everyone you can find this online um, with Claudia Rankin. You have an epigraph um, that starts it, and then by the end you weave her voice in for the closing notes as well. Um, it seems like you created this because you you seamlessly went into a style that Rankin is using. And using the second person, you, to, to begin the narrative of this piece. Can, yeah, can you talk a little bit about this as a choice and, and why, why it was the right choice to start this piece? Um, yeah, it was an interesting experiment for me. <laughs> I don't normally write uh, in that way. And I should read much more literature and poetry uh, than I actually do. Um, this is like true confessions with Mabel <laughs> O. Wilson today. If I could only tell you my, my story of a romance, a romance <laughs> writing. But um, um, it was interesting because I was asked to contribute to an online um publication for Dimensions of Citizenship, which was a pavilion at the um, Venice Biennale for architecture. And so the question of the American pavilion was like, all right, how do we show these dimensions of citizenship? So I just wanted to con unpack the concept of citizen. So clearly I went, to, I went to ranking and started to think about, you know, all right, what is she describing? But she's describing like all of these like little tears that are experienced in everyday life, you know, like you're, you're walking into an office and someone makes this slight. You walk into a cafe and there's an assumption of this. You're looking for a home and the real estate um, uh, salesperson says this. And so I like the way in which she's using and describing the spaces of everyday life. And so I wanted to adopt her voice to tell something quite autobiographical about a house and experience um, that um, I had when I was teaching it. Uh, University of California, Berkeley last year. Beautiful modernist house up in the Berkeley Hills, and I couldn't get the key to work. And I had a panic attack because I didn't want to be a black woman standing outside of a house I didn't own up in the Berkeley Hills. And this was back in January. And literally three months, four months later, there was a, an African-American fireman up in the Oakland Hills doing his job, making sure that the brush was clean so these houses didn't burn down. People called the police on him. So I was not wrong no, right. <laughs> to have certain concerns about my visibility in that context. And so that's so and you, so you start as you climb the stone stairs several. I don't know. Do you want to read a couple of like, do you want to read part of this, um, Mabel? Or just to sort of throw that at you? Yeah, you um, you receive your key and settle in to prepare for the next day next day's presentations before catching a flight back to the East Coast. Upon returning the following week to teach your first class, you dig in your handbag for the house key and insert it into the lock of the outer gate. It doesn't open on the first try. You turn it left and right, but it does not cooperate. After about two minutes of twisting and turning, pushing and pulling, the lock gives way. Later, you inquire if your two housemates have the same problem. Yes, it's a stubborn lock, but you will get used to it, they say. 
The next day, it's the same scenario. Your heart races, anxiety sets in. What if someone doesn't know you're a visiting professor and thinks you're trying to break in? And then you continue on sending an email to the, I guess, the your sort point, of point of contact yeah. or so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. So I include the email, of course. I re- remove the names, but I, I include the email. And I make Which a, is great. It's yeah. a great email. Yeah. And I make a reference to Henry Louis Gates, who was in the same situation outside of his own home in Cambridge. And someone calls the police on him because they think he's breaking in. And, you know, I was just, you know, I was joking when I said, I don't want this to be a Henry Louis Gates situation. But I was also quite serious about right. that. Right. Yeah. And as you said, in the Oakland Hills, just more recently, that these concerns play out and reality. Um, yeah, no, there was the whole barbecue-ish, you know, around Lake Merritt. I used to live in Oakland. You know, there was the young girl selling lemonade uh, or actually bottled water um, in San Francisco. There was a guy who had a lemonade stand in the Mission. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And some of these moments you you bring into this piece. Um, the next section is titled Dispossessing Blackness. And and here you, you bring Claudia Rankin back into it with her book Citizen too. Um, should we talk about Americanness and home ownership? Because sure. you, you mentioned that earlier yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, part of it, you know, I was interested in um, just the idea of who owns what, um, you know, um, you know, the sense of mine, not yours is, is really critical and, and important. And the degree to which, um, you know, African-Americans have always been locked out of home ownership by redlining, which is, you know, the ways in which banks partitioned areas where black people lived and said, well, we can't give you loans because, you know, it's it's too costly that you won't pay back the loan. And so it constantly removed African-Americans from accessing a material wealth that would then, you know, allow for a number of things um, over over time. Stability, building, building towards equity or whatever those the the words are that yeah. actually matter. Yeah, I know when my father went to buy a house in the 1960s in New Jersey no less who, you know, he was an engineer for the Pentagon for the Defense Department. He could not get a loan without the builder who is white co-signing the loan for him. So that has that effect. And what year was that? 1962. So that's not <laughs> And this is in New Jersey, right? Right. So these are, you know, this isn't just the Deep South where these things happen. And at the end of the essay, I sort of talk about a new report by um, the investigative group Reveal, who said these practices aren't over. I mean, this is what's happening often in gentrifying neighborhoods that, you know, um, poor folks of color, when they come to apply for these loans that are specifically made available for those neighborhoods, they can't get them. You know, young, young, white 80s versus hipsters are coming in, able to secure those loans, um, and then are buying up property. And so these things, these things aren't over. And I cite specifically the Starbucks incident in Philadelphia, the one that really made the news, because it was a question, you don't belong in this space on in this. And, you know, the the um, barista 
or the manager called the police to ask these two gentlemen to actually leave. And it was ironic that they were waiting for a real estate developer to talk about investment. And that's what I found in Philadelphia, no less, where this reveal report, you know, shows how blacks are being kept out of uh, the, the property market by uh, racism. And so um, this, as I continues here, where um, you say that it's a case study for what it means, this is in quotes, not to be welcomed as an American citizen. Um, and so with that, that feeling, um, it, it seems it seems so clear that that's um, the pain and violence of exclusion then is what uh, what's being experienced. And that's what Claudia Rankin is addressing. Like you said, the, t- the rips, the tears, but they're not, I, the, the, they add up. Yeah, no, they add up into, um, high cancer rates, um, you know, um, strokes, heart attacks, um, you know, all kinds of, you know, it, it, it lessens your, um, you know, your, ch- your chance of survival, um, in some respects. I, you know, in my current, Work like to use a quote from the um, historian and philosopher Michel Foucault, who in his essay, Society Must Def- Be Defended, which is in part on race, um, Foucault makes this thing about the, the rise of the modern state is one of make live and let die. And he compares that to an earlier state formation in Europe of the church, but more importantly of the monarchy, where it was to let take life or let live. So there was a decision about who was <coughs> excuse me, who was going to live versus the way in which the state operates, which is to allocate resources to make life livable and to thrive, or to reduce resources so that it's going to let you die over time. And I think that that formulation is very appropriate for sort of how we see that you live in a neighborhood where there's pollution or you have to pay more for gas and housing, even though you're living in substandard housing, or you don't, you know, questions of access, and that you, as a, you know, friend of mine, um, and the well-known scholar at Ta-Nehisi Coates likes to say plunder, that your your life is always being plundered, right? Uh, racial capital is the term that people are now using. Yeah, that's hard to, um, it seems like if we're talking about building, it's hard to build a self while you're just trying to, to save a self individually yeah. and, and by living in a community, the, the whole premise of community is meant to be that we are in support of each other and that's, it's working the opposite. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, my current work even questions that premise from the conceptualization of the United States. Was it ever really right. meant to be everyone? No, it you know? wasn't. Was no, it? it wasn't. It only, if you looked a certain way and were at a certain gender. And... Yeah, no, it certainly didn't include women <laughs> at all. So, you know, I mean, these are very important ideas, but we have to somehow dispense with the mythical and look at the history in terms of really how it's played out um, and who's been allowed um, to really, really thrive in this country and who's always had to fight to survive. And so like the title of the book, um, your book, Mabel, Begin with the Past, that's what we have to, that's what we have to do, whether you're looking at telling the story of a museum um, or the story of our country. Yeah, the hi- history can tell you a lot. 
it can tell you a lot. Oh, although history has its own problems. <laughs> well, doesn't it though? Because that's who who's telling who tells the, the history. History, yeah, yeah. yeah. History's to- turn, you know, uh, often told from the perspective of the victor. So that's why we, ha- I, yeah. I, well, I can't wait to visit um, the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, that your your book has done its its work of. Dis- I have an image of it, and I can't wait to go, um, Mabel. Um, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about another one of your recent projects, Memorial to Enslaved Laborers at the University of Virginia. Okay. Today on the program, Mabel O. Wilson is here. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and we'll be back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Mabel O. Wilson is here. Begin with the past, building the National Museum of African American History and Culture out with Smithsonian Books. Um, So, Mabel, you've got a lot of projects going on. And one of the first things I wanted to ask you... um, I haven't even got to, is sort of balancing the work of being an artist, a scholar, a historian, a designer, an activist. I might even be missing a few. Curator. (laughs) Curator. Yeah. So how does that work for you as a, a maker and a human being? Um, my, well, my, my, my um, practice is called Studio And because it's Studio And Everything Else. <laughs> and it's just that I found all of these different platforms to work through these ideas in different ways. And some, you know, I, I think almost all of them are historical and they just have different registers of creativity, whether it's performance or historical curation or design projects. Photo essays. Scholarly work, photo essays. I've done a little bit of video work. Um, yeah. But I, but I like to think of what I have as a practice. 
Um, that includes writing and many other things. So a transdisciplinary practice. Yes, I loved that. I wrote that down. Yeah. Um, so can you say more about that? Because is that how do you em- how do you embody that? How do you give off the vibe of just transdisciplinary professional ADD? <laughs> but I think it's part it's of a being positive though. A little unruly and undisciplined in how you work, and I find. You know, that architecture was too limiting for a lot of reasons, particularly as a black woman. I just I always thought of myself, I now describe as a vampire, as you know, in my education, because I never saw myself reflected back and who and what I was studying. And so I always had to start to then started looking at contemporary art. I started looking, you know, reading people like Bell Hooks and Skip Gates and um, Cornell West and looking at various artists um, and, you know, just trying to look at that as inspirations for my work. So I think it started very, very, very early on. Film, um, yeah, many things. Well, well, let's talk about one of your more recent projects uh, that falls into the performance category. Um, tell us a little bit about Marching On. Um, Marching On was a really great collaborative. And a, and a lot of what I do, except for mostly the writing, I, there are always collaborations with different people. Uh, and so I like that because it's dialogue and you learn a lot. And, um, you know, it just it, it just allows the creative process to have many more facets and voices. So um, I work with a really great architect, um, Bryony Roberts, and she... I had done a really great performance piece at the first Chicago BNL with a drill team in front of this Mies van der Rohe post office in downtown Chicago. And Ava Frank, who was then the curator of Storefront for Art and Architecture in New York, saw Briny's performance, but she's like, but, but these are young black people and they're tossing these rifles up in the air in military formation. Like, that does not compute. What's the backstory? So she asked if Bryony and I would co- uh, collaborate and that we'd get, you know, we'd seek funding. And, and so we came up with this sort of project that we would work with a drum line and um, dance line, um, the Marching Cobras, who are fantastic. They actually um, appear in a number of, they're in film and they, they, they do all kinds of things around New York City and now actually internationally. And so we worked with them and we, choreo- we worked with their choreographers and directors and did a piece specifically for them to be performed as part of Performa 17, which is this um, performance biennial in, in, in New York City. So it was phenomenal. David Byrne showed up, showed up to the performance because he's obsessed with marching bands. Um, but it was also <laughs> You're important. like, stand back, David. <laughs> but it was also somewhat of a pedagogical project because, you know, these kids know the, 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 the genre that they're working in about marching and dancing, and, and they know it's connected to historically black colleges and universities, but not the larger history of what does it mean for African-Americans to take to the streets in March. And so we had them perform very early on in the choreography as the silent march. Um, So the dancers were white, and that's what uh, the participants in the silent march did, which was in 1917. They marched down Fifth Avenue, and this was a march organized in part by Du Bois against lynching. Um, and so, you know, they performed, the, the dancers performed that. The drummers were the, um, uh, this very famous regiment, um, the, um, oh gosh, I totally blanked on the, um, the name of the Harlem Hellfighters, famous World War Two, World War One regiment that went over, introduced jazz to Europe, uh, and came back and had one of the largest parades in Manhattan at the time. And here were these African American soldiers who had fought for their country, and yet they were coming back to the the 
Klan, um, you know, not being able to find jobs and the usual racial strife that they had left. So they defend the honor of the country, but can't come back and, 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 and actually live as an American. Um, so we thought it was important for them to also perform that history. So it was a really great, great performance. Uh, and and with and marching on, I, I love how that's like we're we're marching into the future yeah. as well as as remembering the past. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So it was it was great. And then you know the end of the performance, they they flip the uniforms, they flip their capes, and it's the multicolored camouflage, and it's the colors of the cobras, and and then they you know do more of their routine. So it's the sort of evolution of marching and. Um, yeah. And is that is that how is that the culmination too? So when they are that the hellfire cobras uh is that like the where the piece goes to? Yeah, they become or... the marching cobras okay. and then they and then they proudly sort of march back out into the city. So we performed in Marcus Garvey Park uh in Harlem. So it was really great and we had six performances, three uh, for, for a Saturday and a Sunday. Can people find this online? Is um, there a, an artifact or a video? Yeah, if you look on the um Storefront for Art and Architecture website, I think you can find more information about it and all of the newspaper uh that we produce for the exhibition as well. And there was a whole exhibition we did of all the research and you know there were photographs. We had great photographers, videographers, costume um, so did you go into the archives to also... We, re, we, we researched the history of marching, um, particularly around for African-Americans in this country. Yeah, and New York was actually a very important moment uh, in the, right before the Civil War, where there, were, there was a black regiment that formed, um, and they marched around Union Square. And was that represented in the, the event itself or in an exhibition? That wasn't, but that was it? in the exhibition. And But we also give a nod to the historically black colleges for a sense of style and movement. But, you know, we really try to trace the history. And then, you know, we have a video that sort of does a, almost a documentary about the performance in us. And then we have a video of the performance itself in the gallery. Ah, uh, so we can look for that. Yeah. Look for that. So, um, with the time that we have left, Mabel, let's talk about also one of your more recent projects, a Memorial to Enslaved Laborers at the University of Virginia. Um, yeah, so could you talk a little bit about this project and and, and your work with it, the, yeah. the goals, who's involved? Yeah, no, another amazing collaborative project. I work with um, really fantastic friends, but also architects, uh, Mijin Yoon and Eric Howler in Boston, uh, Greg Bleem, who's a landscape architect in Charlottesville, um, Frank Duke, who is an environmental mediator, he was sort of our activist connector to the community, and uh, Eto, uh, Eto Tigbe, who's an artist. And so we formed the core team. We worked with great people at the university um, to actually build a memorial that was a student initiative. It was something that the students demand. They made the university accountable to um, make visible its and, and to account for and to reckon with its own history of slavery, which had been buried, um, really had been lost. Like who had built the campus? Who built the campus, but also that enslaved labor was a, a very important part of the, the early years of the university. Yeah, up how it until even ran. Civil, how it ran all the way up until the Civil War. They estimate about 4,000 enslaved people were there. The university ever owned, only ever owned one person, but they rented people. Faculty, the professors owned people, and the hotel owners who ran the hotels, they, which were the eating places where the students ate, they also owned people as well. And so what will be some of... Um, so there'll be lectures. What, what does it look like? Like, how are you... What's the life of this? Because um, it's, it's a memorial. Yeah, no, we were hired. They didn't, the university didn't have a... Uh, program. So they didn't know what it was. They didn't know where it was going to be and they had no budget. 
Oh, which in many ways is a dream project <laughs> and a dream client. You do whatever you want. But it's a big state university <laughs> yeah. uh, and a very difficult topic. So part of and also they wanted to engage the black community of Charlottesville. So that was really challenging. And that was where, um, uh, was it Frank? Uh, Frank Dukes was very, very helpful in that. So in dialogue with them, really helped us that we need to name names. We have to show the pain, but we also have to give humanity to the enslaved. And so we've made a sort of 80-foot diameter, which is the same dimension of the famous rotunda that Jefferson designed. It's out of granite, Virginia mist. Um, And, you know, there are ways in which we've included uh, an image of an enslaved um, person, Isabella Gibbons, on the exterior. We name names, but it's challenging because the slave record doesn't give us first and last names of many people and a timeline that talks about what were people doing there. In your in your uh, recent piece, A Questionnaire on Monuments, um, how you finished that, it's, it's, I love that it's titled A Questionnaire um, because it's 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 not. It's, it's it, this is lovely um, and uh, pushing back on any sort of containment of form. But you end by talking about the bricks that the, this rotunda was made of and how there were thumbprints um, made by an enslaved laborer. Yeah, I. I you don't I don't think you say this but I wondered like is it possible that it was made intentionally because these these echoes remain of like I made this yeah I don't know intentional but you know there were often children who were making bricks um, and I mean they they know who they've hired some yeah I mean it's a complicated sort of a, a, a industry in terms of like who was making making what you can also see them in Monticello if you get close to the house or their fingerprints all over the bricks of the house. Um, and it's an improbable, you know, I say it's an improbable memorial. I mean, it gives the trace. But that was very important for us as as architects to show the material labor, to have the trace of, of something that people could touch. Um, and the, and that, that icon of the brick with the thumbprint was very, very, very resonant with many people we spoke with. We were here. We were here. And we made this. Yeah, Absolutely. Mabel, thanks so much for talking today. My pleasure. Thank you. Come back anytime. Today, Mabel O. Wilson, uh, the book that we started talking about at the beginning of the program, Begin with the Past, Building the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Thanks to Stephanie at the Institute of Humanities. Thanks to the living writers engineer, Stephanie Douglas Carpenter, Frank Uli for post-production. So I can add these episodes to our Living Writers website. Check us out. Follow Living Writers on Instagram and Twitter. I mean, tweet at us if you want. It's been brilliant talking with you, Mabel. Please come back again. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening out there uh, today on the program. Mabel O. Wilson, and I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
says here, the WCBN fundraiser is coming up. I think I'll skip it this year. I donated last year. Are you skipping breakfast this morning because you ate breakfast yesterday? Who are you? I'm the voice inside your head. I have a lot of expenses this year. <laughs> Who doesn't? WCBN will get by if I don't donate. Well, what if everyone said that? WCBN survives on hundreds of small donations from people like you to keep high-quality programming on the radio. Hey, where'd you get that echo? I'm in a big empty space. What are you trying to say? WCBN uses your donation to buy needed supplies to maintain their equipment. It's something you appreciate every time you listen. I suppose I could donate a few dollars this year. Just buy a few less pizzas next week. Hey, watch it. The WCBN Fundraiser, coming soon to your listening device. Are you unable to pay for medical care? Do you need health insurance? The Corner Health Center is the place for you. The Corner offers judgment-free, high-quality health care exclusively to all who are aged 12 to 25. They provide health care regardless of insurance status or ability to pay and will assist you in obtaining health insurance. Services include, but are not limited to, physicals, vaccinations, mental health programs and counseling, sexual health and contraceptive services, OBGYN, diet and nutritional support, and LGBTQ hormone therapy. The Corner is here for you. For more information or to schedule an appointment, call 734-484-3600 or visit cornerhealth.org. Hello. I hope everyone is having a wonderful day. For all the animal lovers out there, have you ever wanted a dog, cat, puppy, kitten, or rabbit but not had the time to fully commit? Just want to help animals in any way that you can? Being a foster parent for the Michigan Humane Society could be perfect for you. It's easy to sign up or get information on their website. Foster Parenting Animals has all the rewarding qualities of owning a pet, but for as long as you are available to do it. Most stints with an animal only last a few weeks anyways. The flexibility is amazing. You also have the ability to touch and change the lives of animals in a positive way. For more information or next steps, head over to michiganhumane.org. Life with Catherine, co-starring Woofer, the Wonder Dog, Episode 12, Things to Come. Woofer, move away from the door. I've got like five minutes to get to my biochem class. <laughs> okay, but this had better be muy importante. I'll give you 30 seconds to explain yourself. <laughs> What's that? You say it's almost time for WCBN's annual fundraiser? <laughs> And that WCBN, which I can count on for the best in music, public affairs, and U of M sports, will be counting on me and hundreds of other generous listeners to help keep them on the air for another year? <laughs> so I should be sure to tune in and be a part of it all? <laughs> Woofer, I told you! I have got to get to class. Besides, I don't feel like discussing deconstruction of the Hegelian dialectic. <laughs> Take a tip from Woofer, the Wonder Dog. Tune in to WCBN's annual fundraiser and do your part to make the Homeland's airwaves the envy of the free world. demanding three-year jail sentences for the members of a controversial feminist punk band, Pussy Riot, 
who staged a protest stunt in Russia's main cathedral. FM. FM. WCBN FM. Ann Arbor. My name is Arundhati Roy. I should just say WC, WCBN FM, right? Okay. This is uh, WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and uh, the revolution will not be funded. Allen Ginsberg here, announcing that this is station WCBN FM Ann Arbor, your Dharmic free speech station. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host, Alex Strain, joined today by Adam Bressler to uh, bring you a, a, a mostly conversation about Michigan men's basketball. There may be other topics mixed in, but obviously now into the stretch run of the season, I think there's, what, two and a half weeks left, something like that in the regular season. And uh, Michigan is now up to 14-1 and one. Uh, on the year nine and one in big 10 play, but it's a tough stretch coming up in the next, uh, you know, five to seven or eight games, depending on how many get rescheduled. They're likely going to play all three of the top uh, contenders for the big 10 championship, Illinois, Iowa, and Ohio state, of course, coming off of a great win uh, this past weekend against Wisconsin. We'll start with the game against the Badgers. Adam, what stood out to you? Uh, in that first game uh, against Wisconsin? To me, it was really the resilience. Uh, coming out of the gate, they did not look that good, and going down into halftime, down by so much, I wasn't super surprised. Like, they uh, had not played competitively for three weeks, and including a lack of practices during that period as well. So it certainly wasn't surprising to see them down by so much going into halftime. But I'm quite, quite impressed at their resilience and their ability to come back down 12 and then make it an eight-point win. Like, um, that's really going to pay dividends, especially on the road uh, in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Livers with a very quiet 20 points. I'm surprised at uh, how little uh, people are paying attention to, to that. I guess it's he's so good. He's a 